Welcome to the Monjo Body Podcast, episode number one. This is your host, Jacob Andre, and today we're talking to former head strength and conditioning coach at Essendon and Geelong Football Clubs, Loris Bertolacci. So, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacob Andre, and for over a decade, I've trained everyone from children to elite athletes to move better, feel better, and perform better. While a thorough understanding of fitness and nutrition is vital, underpinning that is mindset. And I've come to discover just how important it is. I've worked with literally thousands of people. And more often than not, it's the ones who win the mind game who succeed in the big game. So, how do they do it? This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. G'day and welcome to the show. My name is Jacob Andre. This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. And today I'd like to welcome to the show, Loris Bertolacci. Good day, Loris. How are you? Yeah, good day, Jacob. Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah. Another beautiful day in Darwin. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's uh, starting to warm up a bit, isn't it? It is actually, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, certainly different to Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Melbourne. You've come from Melbourne. You're up here working at the Northern Territory Institute of Sport. You've had a very long and illustrious career uh, in high performance sport. You come from a family of coaches and athletes. You've been a, a great athlete yourself and have uh, traveled around the world as an athlete. You've Worked in 20-plus years at high-performance um, coaching as a high-performance coach at Essendon Football Club and Geelong Football Club. and Yeah, Loris, tell us a little bit about your life and how you've ended up here in Darwin. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think that um, it's a little bit of a different pathway to many people now that are coming out of university. And, and, and working in strength and conditioning sports science because obviously uh, it was a different era. So, so, so basically um, I, I, was, I did athletics. Uh, I did sport in the 70s and 80s and, uh, and then coached. Uh, did, did a bit of science at uni but not specifically, uh, you know, um, strength and conditioning or whatever. And... Um, and then worked uh, at the butt end of my career with sport and a few other things. So I worked in uh, gymnasiums in, 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 in councils, so I was a gym manager, <laughs> uh, which was really good because that was extremely practical and applied and, and obviously managing people and, and organisations and staff and et cetera. Um, and then, look, to some extent fell into a role at Essendon Footy Club on the back of having been an athlete. I, I really think, and uh, that went on till we won a premiership. But in the meantime, in that space there, I had to chase up all my qualifications. So, you know, went back and did my degree, did, uh, did my sports uh, postgraduate, sports science, you know, started my master's, um, and, then, and then got a gig on the back of that when we won a premiership at Collingwood. So it was pretty much, you know, my, my applied sports athletics background. Really, that was the backbone. I've been a weightlifter too, and I've trained sprinters, been a thrower, you know, trained overseas, seen athletes, been at the AIS. So I had a fairly broad vision of how to train people. Uh, had a scientific background, got qualified, started getting gigs as a high-performance manager, uh, and that tracked through till 2007 at a variety of clubs, you know. So it was pretty lucky, pretty lucky period, really, in some ways, especially, I would think, um, the mid-90s till the early 2000s, because now the head of high performance tends to be a manager to some extent, and you are still hands-on, but a little bit less, but uh, because clubs didn't pay as much and there wasn't as many people involved in staffing you did everything you know you, you did loadings you had talks with the coaches the medical staff you did the power program strength program speech program got them fit did the guy, guy did a hammy you went you know but uh, but the australian sports science industry was exploding at the time it was a world world leader world leader in, in the in the 90s um, so i was actually tightly aligned to that industry uh, the ais and, and how that was sort of working in that time so so it was a pretty great area, and I learned a lot. Didn't 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 earn enough money, <laughs> but um, but earned learned heaps about you know, how to train people, how to manage programs, and, and, and all the machinations uh, around that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how I how I ended up here? Uh, oh, look. After that, the my career. Uh, I didn't. Two thousand seven was the last day for a club I worked with. Um, worked as an exercise physiologist, which is with ESSA, you know, it's a sort of a more like a rehab side of things. 
worked with physios and, and, and did all this sort of Pilates stuff and rehab stuff. But then I sort of moved back into sports, set up my own consultancy, set up with a few people and lectured at unis, um, you know, liaised with clubs like Werribee in the VFL and Melbourne City and A-League, did GPS monitoring, did a heap of stuff um, all around sport, trained athletes, people on the tour, in tennis, you know, elite netball teams, etc. fitness testing. And, oh, look, an opportunity came up last year. Um, I went for one job, didn't come up. Came, another, another job um, was advertised and then, oh, look, it just, there was an interview and, there, you know, I got the job and I thought, well, why not? You know, why not do something really different and work in a, in a fabulous, you know, it is a fabulous place, Darwin, and, um, and work in the Institute of Sport and, and um, work in coach education and, and sort of do something a little bit different to what I've done in the past. And um, that's basically how I've ended here. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So to go back to your athlete days, I know because we work together at the Institute, uh, you've told me a few stories. For the listeners <laughs> out there, you you told me that you went over to Italy and you went and did some stuff. There was no internet back then, and so you had to go and learn your stuff yourself. And so you actually took yourself over to Italy and, and learnt from the best. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, look, I suppose, yeah, great believer. You've, you've just got to, you've got to invest in yourself sometimes. Uh, it's different now. Uh, yeah, look, at the time I, I, I took on hammer throwing and um, – I was a, I did athletics as a kid, but then I stopped for a while. So then I started hammer throwing again at 19, I think. And there was just no expertise in Australia. There was um, one guy who was really good had come through the US system in France. It was an Aussie guy, Peter Farmer. Actually, my brother-in-law, Gus Poplo, who's a really famous coach now, he won a few Australian titles, but he was sort of in Germany and and he had quite a bit of expertise. Um so there was really nobody to learn off in Australia. It was pretty bad uh, at the time. So I just worked for a year and earned as much money as I could, um, put university on, the, on hold, which was probably a bad thing, <laughs> and, um, and just disappeared overseas. And, 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 and yeah, um, pretty lucky, really. I finished up, because I had an Italian passport, I finished up in Italy, and, and the, the Italians were great because they know how to wine and dine, so all the Eastern European coaches used to gravitate towards, you know, the, the athletic establishments there so they could buy blue jeans and drink wine and then the Italians used to get them pissed and find out what they could they knew. And So I was around all that era and a lot of very famous people like Bondashuk and Petaschini, all pretty people that have written books and that, and just was around there and um, trained and, and, and I think more than it did help my hammer throwing I won an Australian championship here I came back probably a mistake but um, it was more what I learned in strength and conditioning and, and plyometrics and and, 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 and and really everything that's known now was known then what's 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 added now is sports science and rehab and fine-tuning but by the late 70s people knew what they were doing you know in terms of strength and conditioning there's nothing really new there's, there's nothing new at all. Um, there's a lot new in sports science. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, so that was that. So I went twice back to Italy and, uh, you know, it was obviously a great personal thing, but um, it was uh, certainly a magnificent learning experience. And when I came back, yeah. that probably gave me the edge once, you know, like eight, nine years. I coached after that and then... Uh, I trained as an athlete, obviously, then I coached, I retired, coached, and then, then obviously got an AFL, so everything I learned over there was massive. Yeah, you're right, there, there was no information. Basically, you know, it was the days of actually you either bought a book, rang somebody up, or the AIS was so far ahead of everybody in the world, they had the AIS library, so you just drove or flew to the AIS and you sat in their library and or you hired videos, leased videos off the AOS library, which was just literally light years. They just had a fantastic system. Guy just who was behind it all, Greg Blood, just retired recently. Crazy, crazy compared to now. Yeah. Crazy, crazy different, you know. Um, but, um, you know, I suppose in terms of learning, it's sort of learning sticks because <laughs> um, – you know, we, we, we tend to be in an era now where we, we're just looking at too many things sometimes and we don't know what to apply. 
So this, it's a great era because there's so much information. It's fantastic, but then you've got to actually do something. You know. Mm. Yeah, you just made mention of you know taking a break from university and a sort of slight comment there that you know it's probably the wrong thing to do. But you obviously went and learnt a hell of a lot over there, and then brought back, and then you um, touched on the AOS library and how far ahead they were of the rest of the world at that point. What is your take on you know the diff, you know the balance between tertiary education and just getting out there and getting practical experience? Uh, look, there's there's absolutely it's getting more and more critical, and this is a discussion that we've had recently amongst people. To be, it's it's getting more and more important to be qualified. Okay, so what happens is that. Obviously, the obvious question for a person doing exercise science is do both, right? Mm. And the problem that most, I suppose, inverted common kids or people coming out of university, and I actually recently gave some advice to actually a guy who's 35 is doing exercise science in Darwin, you know, and wants to progress in the industry. And, and, and essentially, I said, look, unless you're lucky, once you finish your degree, you know, get as much experience as you can in Darwin, basically nothing, just work, just whatever you can do, do, teams, just, you know, do things, (laughs) try things, you know, get them fit, get them fast, do waste programs, get your hands dirty on the back of having your degree, and then if you, what, then the question was, what do you want to do to the guy, and he says, oh, you know, I want to get into the system, you know, in future, and specifically for him it was rugby union. I said, well, send his CV over and say you're working for nothing for a year. Mm. And basically most of the time, most of the people that have progressed um, align with me, under me, whatever you want to call it, that are now, you know, in the industry, have done the hard yards early on um, practically, but they've got their qualification, right? And then they've done the hard yards, developed their CV, learn on the job, and then obviously you just got to get the break in the industry, which is tough. The the thing is that um, the thing with with the, the flip side is that you obviously can have a coach, a hundred meter coach, for instance, who's not qualified, um, who's at the track, and as long as they're you know registered and whatever, and um, you know working the ochre card or working with children things and all that sort of stuff is covered. Um, they're, they're fine, right? But within our industry, as in you know, clubs, institutes, and everything like that, you know, it's, it's really important to be qualified. So obviously, by not being qualified, there's a funny story. We and you probably historically won't remember this, but oh, you probably will. If you, um, Essendon lost to Collingwood in the grand final in 1990. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we were favourites by far. Right? So then they have you know a review, like everybody has a review. <laughs> Um, and oh my god, you know, I was the strength and conditioning guy, but I wasn't fully qualified. So then they asked some questions, and I went, "Holy moly, kafoli!" You know. <laughs> so so I just went back and went to Victoria Uni. I said, "Look, I've got all these science subjects I did. You know, how do I finish my degree? Oh, you do this, and okay, you, you know, you're right now. You can do your post grad. You know." So that was a real wake up call for me. To and I think I was 36, 37. Uh, it was a wake-up call to, to just go and get qualified. What did I learn in that period? Yeah, I learned a bit, not a lot, a bit to add to my career. I, I certainly, you know, some of the subjects were really critical and helped me. So, hmm. so it's it's really important. Yeah. So it, it sort of helped me back a little bit. Um, but yeah, I sort of um, and right now, probably wish I had my doctorate. I think you know, um, wish I'd sort of followed through from a postgrad. It, it just just helps in the industry. Mm. As much as people um, sort of think, yeah. So it's, 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 it's quite a balance. It's quite a balance. Yeah. So just to go back, you said you won the Australian Championship in hammer throwing. What year was that, just to save me from having to go and Google it later? Oh, yeah, 1980. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, I probably wasn't um, – I, I, I retired at 26 due to a whole lot of personal reasons. Pretty Pretty much because I think, you know, when one of the things we do at the Institute of Sports talk about holistic development and all those sort of things, right? And I think where I went wrong was that I sort of put everything into sport and didn't work and went overseas and, you know, spent all my money. And, and then all of a sudden, the year after I won the national championships, I had a, a poor year, personal reasons, not, not, not training reasons. And um, 
and then my wheel fell in for two years, you know. Uh, so, so I think that's why I said that I think had I been qualified like as a teacher or something like that at 23, um, I probably would have kept going because when I made a comeback at about 34, I was even better. I was working two jobs and everything, you know, which sort of proved that as a young guy I was wasting my time half the time. But um, So that, that was that comment about education. I think that um, barring an Usain Bolt or, you know, Lionel Messi or – just a ridiculous, prodigious talent, or if you're lucky and you get sucked into the Premier League, or you get drafted and you stay in the system in AFL. Um, you know, I'm always pushing kids to, you know, be educated um, and and cover cover that base in sport because of my experience. And I've done uh, because it, it actually did hurt me for a couple of years. You know, as I had to find my feet. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting to hear you say that because I'm 34 now, and I actually think mentally socially psychologically emotionally all that that i would be better at sport now than what i was back in you know my early to mid 20s when i might have been physically stronger but it's, it's interesting yeah yeah i yeah. oh, look look i think that um that that was more i made a little comeback and i was better it didn't last because it wasn't worth worth it financially for me but it just proved to me that if your life's organised and settled as an athlete, that's so critical. Um, and, and so, therefore, yeah, look, it, it, there's absolutely that 0.1% that are fabulous talents will get sucked into elite sport um, at the highest level and they're lucky and they get away with that education. But, you know, there's a massive amount of kids that um, don't pursue their education or finish it or do a trade or whatever, and then, you know, they just get to 20, 21, 22, and they're just looking at nothing. Uh, and I got to 26 on the back of an Australian championship and knowing what I was doing in training. But that, that side of it, you know, so when you actually get to the cutting edge, you've got to have everything right. Yeah, especially in the individual events, they're so much tougher. Uh, you know, tennis player, track and field athlete, weightlifter, swimmer. It's just the game is so much tougher in AFL and rugby league, etc. You know, you just go and get your head bashed in in the game. The 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 struggle with life is and, and, and you know getting through the system is so much harder in individual sports. So much harder. So much harder. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, so how, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, nothing. That's it. Yeah. Oh, so I was just going to say, what was that transition then throughout the 80s then to then end up? How did you end up at Essendon Football Club? So that was the first AFL club that you worked with. Um, how did you end up there from being an athlete? And- oh, no, it's a good question, actually. And I think that um, it's a little bit different now at my age, but certainly then. And what the advice I give to people is be very clear in your goal setting. So... So therefore, I was sort of scrambling a little bit in my early 30s and like, you know, working in different jobs and and working in gyms, you know, working in fitness. And then I just heard about somebody that had been working, you know, in an AFL club doing some weights, basically, you know, pretty early days. And I sort of thought, wow, this is going to become a big industry, you know, the fitness industry in the AFL. So I got, I went for an interview for the job at Coburg Football Club with a guy called Phil Cleary. He was really famous in Victoria. Um, And he gave me the job as the head fitness guy of a VFL team at the time. Um, And then literally six weeks later, um, the cleaner at Broadmeadows Council told me that there was a job going at Essendon. (laughs) (laughs) That, that is actually the truth. I didn't see it advertised. So Donnie, the cleaner, told me. So I rang the club. They interviewed me six weeks later. Luckily, I'd gotten a job at Coburg, which even though I hadn't done a day's work there. Um, and then on the back of my sport and background, I, I got the gig at Essendon in 1987. Yeah. And I walked in and I was looking at the 84-85 premiership team. Yeah. staring at me in the face, which was pretty scary, you know, first first day of work. So um, different days, different era. and, and then, But that was the first year of the AFL. I started the first year the AFL started. But oh, really? guys were still, yeah, guys were still coming to work in overalls, you know, and coming from the bank, you know, bank tellers, and that was the <laughs> AFL. Yeah, yeah, so 
pretty different era. <laughs> but pretty, pretty already, you know, starting to be fairly professional and and uh, but yeah, we I'd get there at four and finish at nine, sort of stuff. Yeah. So, what were your some of your favourite memories from that era? So, you started in '87 Essendon, and you were there until '97. Is that correct? Uh, 87, 93, won a premiership with Essendon, you know, all that sort of uh, 93 premiership team. Went to Collingwood for a year and went back. So, yeah, it was six years in, a, in essentially a part-time role, um, which was part-time, full-time really. But And then Collingwood was the start of, you know, being a high-performance manager. Uh, so that's six years. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. We were at Windy Hill. Windy Hill's iconic, fabulous place. You know, I think a lot of people agree that it's sort of in that sort of great part of Essendon and um, – Oh, it's just a lot of fun. Basically, it was a lot of fun and, and a lot of um, sort of different things happening, like, you know, whenever Sheedy felt like it, he'd bring in the commandos or, you know, just crazy stuff and um, different different era, I suppose, of footy. Um, but, you know, Windy Hill was iconic. You know, you go and play at Moorabbin, so it was pretty much like being in the 40s, really, you know, in a mud heat. Um, see, see, seeing helicopters come in to dry the ground and, and stuff like that. So, so I definitely remember the day when, in, I think in 92, when we all went for a, a tour of the MCG when they, they rebuilt it. And Essendon, you know, transferred, you know, and there was a big furor about leaving Windy Hill. But, uh, yeah, it's just lots of fun, really, I think. Lots of fun. Um, a lot of um, thinking, you know, pretty tough training. Uh, a lot of hard work physically for me because it was a lot of, just getting stuff done, you know, on grounds and bringing stuff out and setting up circuits, and it was just hard work. Um, but, yeah, again, same thing, pretty much by myself. Um, so, you know, obviously there was another fitness guy there, but, but had to attend to everything. And also you had the under-19s there for many years, for a couple of years before the TAC started. So you, you literally had... You know, 100, pretty much probably what happens here too. You had 100 people in the club in one night, yeah. So, yeah, pretty, 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 lots of fun. Yeah, look, and obviously Sheedy was uh, still, you know, deemed the absolute master at the time. And uh, some of the you know, halftime addresses and some of the things said would just not be transferred into this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, leaving that out then, um, what was it like to work with him? It would have been. Like you're a part of history. It's what was it like? Oh well, well I I think obviously you had assistant coaches. I, I think the beauty of Essendon in that era was that that I enjoyed. Obviously, there was the footy side, but it was showtime at Essendon. It was certainly a flashy club, and you, you know you, you, you could be. I can't even remember the actor's name. Some guy, some some American guy who was really famous. You know, you you just turn up to training, and next minute you're in a room and you're listening to you know some amazing actor that's just turned up in Australia, and he turns up there and he's talking to the players and uh, some some pretty zany stuff. Uh, that, that that definitely was uh, different, and it was impromptu. It, it, it wasn't very planned. But it all fell into place. Obviously, you had some great medical staff. I mean, Bruce Reed's still there, and he was there then. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. There was the days of the gauntlets. You know, if you lost a game or the hundred hundreds in the Sunday morning, <laughs> uh, if you lost a game, and um, yeah, so it's a bit of a different era. But it was a transition era. There was absolutely no doubt that um, we were moving from. It's essentially, you know, just part-time footy to 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 um, to proper coaching and elite coaching. So I was part of that era in that transition. But yeah, I look shoes. I met him the uh, I met him a couple of weeks ago when he was Darwin, and um, uh, yeah, it was never a dull moment. Absolutely no, never a dull moment there. So some uh, some pretty interesting stories there. Um, and, and obviously, I went to Collingwood. For a year in '94, and that's when I was full time with Lee Matthews. Yeah. And so, what was the purpose of that? Was that to try and extend your career, or you know, to kind of broaden your experiences, or was there a no, falling no, well, out? No, no. What happens is no, 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 no falling out. What happens is when you win a premiership with a team, doesn't matter if you play darts with them. You know, you're deemed the guru. Yeah. 
Um, so a job came up full time with Collingwood as the head of high performance here. And um, they were still mixing, mixing and matching my role at Essendon. And it just gave me an opportunity to leave the leisure industry and just fully focus on, you know, high performance AFL. Um, it, it was a really odd time too because I was looking at a business at the time, so I didn't enter into a contract at Collingwood. So at the end of that year, I, Collingwood, Essendon headhunted me back. <laughs> but that happens a lot in the industry, you know. So they, they restructured their positions and they just said, look, if you want to come back, uh, you can come back. And I, it was just a, you know, I just, I just thought it was an end of an era at Victoria Park and, um, and Essendon was pretty exciting. So I thought I'll go back. Um, but, yeah, Collingwood was fantastic because I literally was handed the job of pretty much think I may have been maybe with another person, possibly at West Coast, I'm not sure. We may have been, or I might have been, the first full-time high-performance guy in the AFL ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it could be just two of us, I reckon. Might have been simultaneous. I think West Coast. I think went full-time at the same time. So we basically didn't know what to do all day. <laughs> that's 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 actually a true story. So, but but Lee was really good, um, and it took half the year to work out what do you do when you're full-time. Yeah. Uh, so you can't train all day, right? Because you're going to kill the players and. Um, and there was a massive, massive shift, you know. Uh, so we toyed with it a bit at Essendon the year before. and then, So that, that was the experience at, Essendon, at Collingwood, was just learning how to structure a day and how to structure a program, um, what do you actually do, you know, instead of training and on a Wednesday you've got to have a meeting with them because, you know, you can't smash them in season, blah, blah, blah. So that, that process and then obviously went back to Essendon. And, and really the mid-'90s heralded a big change in the AFL, massive change. Pretty much that era, yeah. So you also uh, were in charge at Geelong and at Western Bulldogs. How did you end up there after going back to Essendon? Oh, look, there was um, a little bit of politics, I suppose, which just happens, you know. I mean, I was in the system a long time. I think that was um, uh, 98 at Geelong. And I felt because of that, there was an opportunity at Geelong that opened up. So I, I just thought at the time, time to move, basically. So I, I, I left myself. Um, the irony of that was that Geelong was deemed to be financial when I went there, 98, 99. But they had a black hole in their finances. So they nearly went broke. And if you look up Google, you'll see that in mid-99. Uh, they had um, oh, it was a real mess financially they, they finished up at the time $10 million in debt so halfway through the year at Geelong in my first year they basically said sorry guys you got no money so you know I had a contract I was going to get paid of course but you know, forget buying new equipment so you're actually not going to believe it in 99 you know my brother-in-law who's a, he's got um, a manufacturing industry but he's, a, he's, a, he's an elite coach he, he uh, bought for free his power racks and everything. <laughs> Think about it. Um, but um, so, that, yeah, look, that was a bad experience and a good experience at Geelong because obviously you had to, again, um, settle. You know, they, they changed the administration at Geelong with Brian Cook and Frank Costa and the directors took over. They underpinned the debt. They got Bendigo Bank. They pulled it back quite a few million and then they, we were just told, work hard for three years and you ain't got much money and develop the team. So that was, you know, again, a far better learning experience because I had to do everything and I had, you know, I mean, you know, 20 grand for this staff or 30 grand for this guy, you know, and 10 grand for this and two grand for this and one grand for that you know, as a manager. So I had to really, you know, spend uh, frugally but sensibly and then develop, do, do exactly what's being done now but without much money. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that was that whole changeover, you know, the Wojcicki, Cameron Ling, Paul Chapman, Corey Enright, you know, all those guys came in. Um, so basically what I learned, you know, I was, I was always learning and, and experimenting and trying things and changing and, um, yeah, so so that was uh, that was really good, yeah. Uh, that, that lasted until two, 2006, well documented on Google, um, what happened there. And um, so then I... Wasn't high performance manager at Western Bulldogs. Um, I was a, a consultant, so I did a 
project, they had six ACL injuries, so I actually spent the year working out why they had all these six ACL injuries, so I had to provide a report to the board. I provided a report on all their programs to the board that year, and then the next year I stayed on as a consultant and underpinned the development of their new staff. Um, so that was really good. That was a really, really interesting role because I was actually in the back back room and uh, doing a lot of um, uh, consultancy and, 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 and sort of um, developing staff, you know, um, looking doing that whole thing. So, but uh, yeah, look, Geelong was great because you know we did a we had a final in 2000 and then we played. Um, I was involved in five finals up till 2005 and then we won the preseason cup. So, uh, pretty much. That was, you know, a developmental period, and, um, and, and and also by 2004, their debt was clear, so we became financial. So we were starting to harness as far as um, resources and that. So, so that was the real change over with the TV rights into the real professional era of AFL. The real, you know, lots of money being spent in football departments. So. Um, that was that was pretty much it. About, about two, two oh three, two oh four was when the big bucks came in at the at the football department level, not at the player level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who were some of the more funnier athletes that you worked with, and the ones that left a lasting impression on your mind? Uh, I think it's probably more. Look, I, I think obviously Shady was. I suppose I wouldn't call him funny. Bloody different. Um, you know, I, I think I was told the story. We, we organised a, a week at the AIS, I think it was 97, with Essendon. And so it was uh, all the high-performance staff, the medical staff, key members of the board, uh, key members of the admin staff, CEO, et cetera, and the coaching staff. So we all went up there and spent a week talking to everybody at the AIS, you know, how do you train? Just to get ahead of the the pack, and and then um, I, I remember Sheeds uh, said, oh, well, let's go out. You know, I'm sick of this. I'm bored." Um, so he took us to the to Parliament House, took us to the cabinet room, said hello to Tim Costello, and next minute I'm sitting in the Prime Minister's chair. <laughs> uh, so that's Sheeds' influence. He was a pretty well connected boy. Uh, oh, look, um, I think there was some crazy stuff uh, happening. Yeah, like. I don't think it happens now. Like I, I never forget one night. Um, we just to diffuse the situation. We had a bad year in '97 at Essen, so you know, good year, good year, bad year. There's a lot of tension and everything like that. That's right. Yeah, and Sheeze was on the on the edge with his job, and yeah, it was just just. But all of a sudden, you know, as as happened in those eras, um, uh, all of a sudden a, a Range Rover appeared on the ground during training. And you're looking inside, and it's got every animal you could actually possibly think of inside. And then they opened the doors, and um, uh, all these ducks and pigs and everything start walking out in the ground in the middle of training. <laughs> so it was pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. I nearly got the sack once, I think. I reckon I went close because uh, Mark Harvey and I were uh, implicit in uh, – we had a loss, and that would look, it's probably a bit of a sexist – thing I'm going to say here, so I'll probably get smashed. Um, no, it's not really. Um, but we had a recovery session, and the players hated it in that era, you know, to go to the beach. I mean, we're talking the mid-90s, right? And I just thought, you're an absolute idiot. Why would you go at 7 o'clock in the morning? So we uh, – was a bit of a practical joke done by somebody <clears throat> um, that um, all of a sudden a limousine appeared at 7 o'clock on a winter's morning in Melbourne, and um, – Two uh, strippers came out and ran in the beach in the water and then ran back into the limousine. And I've never seen players more motivated <laughs> doing high knees in the water in the middle of winter. That was pretty funny. <laughs> but they were pretty zany days. And, and uh, uh, yeah, look, Michael Long was a very funny man. You know, probably I was actually, I, I met him at the airport and, with, and he was there with his wife. And I was just saying that like, he was probably one of the most graceful athletes I've ever trained. Pretty much, probably one of the most graceful in terms of 
just doing things in the gym and plyometrics and how he did skills and how he ran. You know, he just was an artist, really. And um, uh, But he was a very, very funny man to be around. And, uh, yeah, so lots of fun. And, and he, you know, he was really interesting character before games um, because he would just joke right up to the race, right, right up to running out on the ground. You know, he was – always relaxed and diffused and then mouth guard in and whack, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, at, at Geelong, I suppose, there's a lot of um, Nathan Ablett stories, which are pretty fantastic. They're pretty awesome. And a um, um, uh, couple of other guys. Yeah, well, Nathan Ablett was a different cat. You know, you'd, you'd play a game at 2 o'clock, you'd find him at 8 o'clock in the morning when you're doing rehab in the players' room playing Nintendo and games and you just hang around there all day. <laughs> How is a different cat? Yeah, well, doc- well documented that is actually by recent stories by Steve Johnson. And um, uh, actually the guy who was the uh, runner in Cairo slash physio um, played his good mates with um, at Wanderers with you is um, his good mates with... Uh, Mr. Oh, jo- jo- you're not talking about... Um at Wanderers, the physio, Donny Cabello. Yeah, and then... Um, or possibly Josh Tidswell. Yeah, probably he Josh, at, actually. He, he was at North yeah. Melbourne. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm just trying to think. He was he was good, mate. So, yeah, look, it was just a pretty fun... Look, it's always, there's always humorous things. And uh, I think, uh, you know, there was one thing with me that was pretty funny was that um, <laughs> I... Uh, I was at a training camp, I think, on the Gold Coast, and uh, it was a guy called Aaron Ward, who was a really muscly guy, ex-Hawthorne player, massive unit. And I showed the guys how to do a sort of a tackling drill and a runaway drill, evasion drill, and I ran and hit him. You know? so he just turned around and just smashed me into the ground. You know? <laughs> so I just got up and sort of did a funny sort of pranced at him, you know, and jumped around him and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> And the players loved it, you know, sort of thing, and diffused the situation. And then they all started sort of clapping me and, you know. But so what happened at Geelong for a couple of years was that at any one time, every two or three months, the players would start doing the same clap. And it was just, there was no word said, but that was a signal for me to do something crazy, like a one-arm chin-up or a handstand <laughs> or run around and do some bounding inside or do something stupid, you know. That was pretty funny. So it was, it was always, you know... You know, some of the uh, days at Geelong where we um, where we uh, so we, we went to Cairns or was it Darwin? No, it was Cairns actually. And you know we we uh, we do um, heat adaptation in the gym, so I'd pump the temperature up to thirty three and then let them wear fancy dress and do their weights. So yeah. guys would come in fur coats and stuff like that. So yeah, there's always that sort of stuff that happens in AFL clubs. I think. I think there is a bit of a feeling that it's become a bit sanitised now and the kids, um, not not sort of a bad thing, I don't think it's a bad thing, but the kids uh, that are drafted uh, are taught to say the party line at interviews and things like that. Um, And, uh, yeah, so that was a bit of a comment, I think, that I heard from Matty Scarlett and another friend of mine recently, that they, you know, they thought it was a bit boring in inverted commas now. (laughs) Because, you know, kids were really sanitised the way they were sort of instructed and taught and everything like that. But it's probably a good thing, to be honest, actually. Yeah, so that, that was it. So, but um, but that, that period at Geelong was, uh, you know, probably when um, I learnt more about, say, from 99 to 2005, about individualising programs. That, that was the key factor. Yeah, there's, there's not... There's no such thing as a program. You know, the, the whole thing about group fitness is, is, is a bit of a bit of a. It's okay for the fitness industry, but when you're dealing with elite athletes, um, you've just got absolutely complete, you know, um, different needs. Um, so what what happens in the gym, what happens on the track, should reflect that in your programs. Now, obviously, when you're working at Wanderers or in environments where you're there for an hour and a half and you've got 50 guys, it's very tough. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you can't do it, you know. It's just impossible. You can do it a little bit, but not a lot. 
But at the elite level, you know, that individualised approach became um, – and that's what Andrew Russell said to me recently, the head fitness guy for Hawthorne. You know, if you come to the gym, it looks like a mess when they're training because everybody's doing everything different to everybody else and even the guys that look like they're the same, they're still different too, you know. If somebody's doing a Pilates exercise, somebody's doing a heavy squat, somebody's doing a mini plyo, somebody's doing something like that. And I think that's, that's actually tough for people to understand. Yeah. Because they still see, you know, training as a sort of a, got a military element or, you know, a group setting and, and that's sort of all. So it's really irrelevant to winning a game, really. Yeah. So that, that, that era, that, that probably uh, encapsulated that Geelong era was, you know, getting as individualised as I possibly could or we possibly could within the constraints of the staff and the resources we had, yeah. So how do you think um, training styles have changed over the time? Because it seems to me, looking from the outside in, that um, like footy started to go down a really running-type-based um, game and it was all strength and conditioning seemed to me from the outside. It was all about running and that's why, as you know, I worked with Dean Rioli at Wanderers Footy Club, a local football club here in Darwin, for five years. Um, or two years of that was at a different club, Palmerston Magpies, but... He got me in and said, you know, like I was a, a running guy and he wanted a running side. But it seems like it's, you know, much more about power and strength now. Is, is all that changed? Uh, no, not really. I think, I think. look, I think that um, first of all, uh, there were certain – so certainly in that sort of mid-90s uh, – well, well, well let, let, let's go to Geelong. Let's get Essendon. But, so there's, there was a period, and I was just giving you a bit of an example of how, how fit you have to be. Um, there was a period we had, we'd recruited David Spriggs, Stephen Johnson, Corey Enright, Cameron Ling, uh, Jared Rook, uh, probably lesser Jared Rook. Um, but let's, just, let's just talk about those four guys, right? Um, so four pretty <laughs> uh, pretty good players and there was a culmination in pre-season in 2003 so they'd all been there for about three or four years so they had a bit of work in them uh, we're talking you know mid 10 3Ks we're talking um, 17 beep tests we're talking 21 yo-yos we're talking sub 320s we're talking Still doing the weights, just prodigious runners. You know, Steve Johnson, people, nobody realises what what a tank he is. So even with their max VO2 tests, I did I did those, you know, and obviously had all the other field tests and obviously what you see on the ground. But they, they were prodigious runners. So unfortunately, Spriggy did his knee in a, in a in a in a social incident, and Steve Johnson that year did his ankle in a social incident. <laughs> but. Um, so even then, in that team, you had people with nearly, you know, well, Lingy had a, nearly a 70 max VO2. That, you know what that means? So that's 6.4 litres per minute engine, which means he just takes in that. He's an elite endurance athlete currently. You know, he's 93 kilos. Uh, Corey Enright has 67 max VO2, but could run 295 for 20. So, you know, and he's a big boy. Um, <clears throat> Spriggsy had been an elite distance runner as a kid, so he was just a freak. Um, and as I said, Stephen Johnson had a massive tank, right? Uh, so they're special athletes. They're special running athletes. So that was the case then. Then obviously you had in that team, you had your speedsters like Scarlett, who was just the fastest guy over 10 metres you'd ever seen. And, and, you know, Shannon Burns, who was just explosive, you know, Tommy Harley, who had it all, you know, explosion and endurance. Okay, so what happened? What's the, the difference then? Obviously, the tactics changed about three years ago, four years ago, really, you know, when, when, when obviously everybody started running everywhere. Uh, the GPS data, though, shows that the game changes by finals, okay? So visually it changes, but the GPS data also reflects that. Right? So the game did change. So what happened was that you just had to get players a little bit fitter three, four years ago. You just had to. Right, because I mean, how can you run? How can you go all the way down the ground? And then when the ball gets transferred, you're all going to run down the other end. Right? Yeah. So obviously you had to be fitter, right? Um, but more so, they became a bit leaner. Probably, if anything, 
the skin folds got tighter in the last five, six, seven, eight years. So there was absolutely, and that, that, that's what a lot of local footballers don't realise. You know, you see, I just watched players down at um, Middle Beach running the other day, you know, and people just smash, you know, local fitness guys just smash players and that, well, guys just eat less, you know, just drop a bit of body fat. It's just like instant fitness, you know. So even for, you know, I, you know, the standards I had, which were reasonably rigorous, they were tighter. So you had skin folds of, um, you know, Dexter scans, which are your scans, really low skin folds for AFL, you know, and, and hardly anybody, there's only just a little bit of, you know, a little bit of leeway, just a little bit of leeway uh, for ends of the ground, not too much because even those guys. So that, that's, that was a massive change. But now, um, but the problem is that when you get to finals, it's either a contested game where it's just, just the, the, the tactics tend to go out the door, it becomes more one-on-one. Or the way Western Bulldogs played last last year, you know, which is a massive amount of handballs and, you know, then, then slingshots and all that sort of stuff. But if you don't play contested footy, you're gone too now. So they're just pretty much trying to find that middle edge, middle ground. Really, that's what it is. It's you just try, and then if you think about it, um, you're you've got to look at a player individually, and you've got to say, um, you know, like what's his name, the guy from Darwin, um, Cockatoo. Just forget his hamstrings. That's right. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, no, dear. Yeah. You've got to look at him and say, well, what are you physiologically? How much weight am I going to put on you? If I put too much weight on you, am I going to lose your running ability? But I need to put some strength on you because you need to tackle, you know? So the fitness guy has to make decisions based on what's presenting him, you know, in front of him. And, and what will, what will if I do too much endurance work, I'll slow him down, but I need to do enough to run. If he's not benching 130 or, you know, TRA, you know hex bar deadlifting 150, He's going to get thrown off his legs, but if I do too much of that, you know. So it's just this balancing game, and well, this guy's just a natural, you know, or whatever. So it's still an individual approach to, to how you prepare a team. But the skin folds, funnily enough, laterally, which people don't realise, that's actually, you know, I've often said to local teams, guys, if you just concentrate on nutrition and everybody can get, you know, their guts off them, and not lose your muscle, you're going to be fitter without doing without doing any any different work. Mm. And and that was a pivotal point. So I think the skin falls, and, and yeah, the game changed, but it is swinging back a bit. And I think Luke Hodge said that that he, he feels he said it in a recent article. He feels it's going to go more and more back to contested footy, and they're going to tweet it, you know. So it's just a balancing act, you know. It's a balancing act um, with the game, but you still are stuck with the physical contest. That's the that's the problem. That's the dilemma when you're preparing a team. You know, otherwise, you just have a bunch of boundary umpires playing footy. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how like so you've done a fair bit of work with ACLs, obviously at the Bulldogs, and and hamstring and other soft tissue injuries. You know, have always been a little bit of an issue. But how do you like how do you prevent ACL injuries and hamstring injuries and and those sorts of things? From what you've learned? Oh, oh big question. Uh, there are two steps. Hamstrings are the biggest injury, right? That's number one. Right? Um, it, you know, in all high-level elite team sports, basically, that's that's where that's the big banana because you're just going so fast, so hard, and they're just under huge stress. Right? So, given that that's how they occur, because you're going hard, you're going fast. You're tired, you're going hard, you're going faster, <laughs> you're kicking longer, you know, where sub that doesn't happen. Um, you, you've got to prepare accordingly, all right? So, so basically, the beauty, what, what happens now is that there's a, there's a massive understanding, there's a really, really good picture I saw yesterday that when you're dealing with this sort of injury, it's what's called multifactorial, Okay. So they showed a little kid's toy and then they showed a cockpit, right? So the cockpit's got, you know, dials and <laughs> levers and things and gauges. And in other words, you know, there's a lot of things you've got to take attention to when you're flying a plane. Whereas, you know, if you've got a little kid's toy with, you know, <laughs> steering wheel, <laughs> two things, right? So basically when you ask that question about hamstrings, it's multifactorial. So, you know, obviously um, 
you know, statistics have proven if you're older, you're going to get hamstring. If you had a hamstring before, you're going to get another hamstring. Um, uh, uh, you know, your you know, um, Aboriginal players get more hamstrings because they're probably faster. You know, that's actually been proven, right? Um, and then there is definite research which says that um, def- whoa, definite research which says um, strength of the hamstrings, uh, eccentric strength, um, and is is critical in, in preventing that. That's pretty much proven. Uh, there's starting to be research about running technique, uh, and then obviously exposure to running at that speed. Right, so adapting. So your so the GPS data they use is if you've done high speed sprinting in the off season, and then you've adapted to it and not got injured, then you'll be immune or more immune to injury later. You know, so if a guy just does runs around the block and does lat pulls and bench press and then goes and trains. Um, when he runs fast, his, his legs aren't used to it, his hamstrings, blah, 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 right? So that – and, and then there's all the other factors like could be core stability, um, could be range of motion. They're all the multifactorial ring. Could be your age, you know. You had little, had a little niggle years ago. Um, so it's multifactorial, but probably getting exposure to high-speed running in the off-season is probably the number one antidote. You know, it's like an injection. And then being strong enough and making sure that, you know, you're not just doing squats at the gym and doing your hamstring work, which is actually proven, you know. And not many people – well, a lot do, but, you know, at the local level you don't see it. You know, you'll see people do, you know, squats, lunges, leg extensions, leg press, and then they'll do leg curls. Instead, maybe they should be doing one quad and two hammies in the gym and then – getting out the track in pre-season and doing some sprinting. And if you do that, you, you, you're giving yourself a much better chance, you know. And, and some people are too flexible and some people are inflexible. So that's why it's multifactorial, you know. Um, so when you see somebody coming up with a solution, one solution, well, they're full of shit. You know? <laughs> um, ACLs is different. ACLs is a genetic component, which you're either born with, um, you know, really flexible attachments. So if you're a very powerful person and you've been given, you know, really um, loose attachments and, you know, tendons, ligaments, you know, all that sort of stuff, um, you're predisposed. That's there is that's going to, you know, the more we go, the more they're going to be able to tell you that, look, you've got a high injury risk because of your genetics, right? Um, but obviously in females it's six times so obviously with the, the, the explosion of women's footy it's six times as more prevalent in women's footy uh, in the injuries in general because huh? uh, of the Q angle you know the, the hips are wider so they get more internal rotation so they're going to rip their ACL out uh, so prevention programs have been proven to assist in women's uh, team sports or sports 100% so it's actually almost like should be, you know, that should be the number one thing that's done, you know, for women. If you've got a women's program, you should have a knee prevention program in it, mm-hmm. which will be an ankle prevention program, which will probably help other things anyway. Because that's been proven, and it's definitely been proven in men too. Um, so, you know, jumping, landing, um, core control, hip control, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um that's definitely it. I mean, then the the change that occurred was the grounds, your stops in footy. You know, one of the things we found was cooch grass was a nightmare. So, you know, long stops, cooch grass, cooch grass softens, you might have a hard ground. So they do all that sort of um, look at the ground hardness and all that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that, there's all these little stupid things all over the place. But, look, I think in terms of ACLs, that's more – Females, 100%. Every girl that's playing AFL women's footy um, should spend 15 minutes at the start of training doing a knee prevention program. Um, that, that, and that will incre- in, in help their performance anyway, uh, kicking, landing, and um, and, um, and then obviously, look, there's, there's all the other stuff which comes into it with load management, you know. So, so obviously, if a girl is 15 and she's played basketball and netball that night and then that night she goes to training at footy and you know she's completely tired her load's too high she could be predisposed to injury you know which adds to another factor so load management is, a, is another one um, which, but yeah they're, they're separate they're, they're very different in a way 
uh, slow people generally don't do hammies, obviously, because <laughs> <laughs> they never subject their legs to you know the, the stresses required. So, and that's why at sub elite level you're going to get less hamstrings because it's going slower. There's not as many quick players, you know. Um, so everything's different. So yeah, that's that's a snapshot. I mean, it, the, the thing at the Western Bulldogs was more. They had six ACLs in the space of about six months. And in the end, I had to provide some feedback, and, and it was just varied. One of the guys was uh, – well, one of the guys was Rob Murphy, actually. He was involved in a car crash with, um, with uh, yeah, on the ground with Anthony Rocker. He just got him and twisted him. There's no prevention to that other than the only prevention I could find to something like that was, you know, strong core, strong rotational – Ability, strong legs. You know, he might have withheld that tackle, mm. possibly, but that was nebulous. But one of the one of the injuries was just too early return to play. That's a big problem. You know, um, big problem is is people. Um, and the other one is, um, I think somebody had an ankle injury and hadn't rehabilitated properly, so that the stress goes further up the chain. So then you're in problems with other injuries. You know. Mm. So again, it's. Um, it's it's the the beauty of now is the beauty of these days is that um, everything's multifactorial. That's the big buzzword, right? Which people don't want to hear because people want a solution. You know, they want one thing that's going to work. Mm. Where the expert can go in and tease out what actually occurred, you know, or possibly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's it. That's probably. You could go on for hours about those two injuries. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very, very interesting, Loris. And uh, thanks for all those insights and those stories. That's uh, really interesting. The way I'm going to end each of these interviews is by doing a quickfire 10, so 10 questions which I've sort of written down based on what you've said throughout the interview. Are you up for answering 10 quick questions? Yep, no worries. So the way it will work is I'll just give you like an option or I'll say a word or a statement, ask a question, you just give me whatever first thing comes to your mind and I promise you there's nothing here, there's no loaded guns. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to set you up with anything. Um, they're all pretty harmless and uh, just whatever comes to mind first, go into as much detail or as little as you like and move straight into the next one. All good? Yep. Ready to go. Okay, number one, Italy or Australia? Australia. Darwin? Beautiful. Goal setting? Long term and short term. Best track and field event? Out of Vegas. Old school sports science? Respect it, but move on. <laughs> Cooch grass. Uh, not good for playing elite sport, elite team sports on. Actually, a side note to that: what ovals do you find couch grass on? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm the worst gardener in the world. <laughs> it's just that uh, when when we went to just very quickly when we went to Southport in '98, we had it, my first year at Geelong. Um, uh, two players did an ACL in the first 10 minutes. But anyway, when we found out, it was cooch grass. And so that was in Queensland. So there's cooch grass a lot in the northern states and in WA. So at WA, they've changed it to rye grass now. Yeah. So therefore, you've, and then they, they, they measure it, right? Because it meant, because what happened with cooch grass, you didn't have to water it. And so you had this sort of big, lush layer of grass and then rock underneath. You know? <laughs> so, so to answer your question, not this. You probably, I don't know if there's cooch grass in, in, in Darwin. I don't, I'm not sure with the environment promotes it. Yeah, not, not sure. Couldn't tell you. Yeah. We'll have to go and look that one up. Number eight, best athlete you've ever worked with? Ooh, gee. Just give me one second there. Um, best athlete I've ever worked with. Sorry, I'm just struggling here because I've worked with so many. Um, I'll just say Gary Ablett Jr. Yeah. Good one to choose. Favourite AFL memory? Oh, 93 flag. And number 10, last question, Kevin Sheedy. Different. <laughs> oh, thanks, Loris. Thanks for joining us on the Mind Your Body podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on here. And uh, 
maybe we won't be able to get you back on one day in the future. Thanks for coming along. Good on you, mate. Good luck with it. See ya. Are you frustrated that no matter how much you try, no matter how good you plan to eat, no matter how much you intend to exercise, you just can't seem to stay on track with your health and fitness goals? Do you feel like your best of intentions to have more energy and feel better about yourself results in having even less energy and feeling down? What if there was something you were missing? What if eating healthy was actually enjoyable? What if you looked forward to exercise? What if moving more could actually be really easy? I've put together a free ebook just for you, detailing the strategies for having more energy and feeling better about yourself. And I want to give it to you absolutely free. To get instant access absolutely free, simply visit jacobandre.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-A-N-D-R-E-A-E.com.